Welcome to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast with homilies, talks, reflections, lectures, and other snippets of life from the Diddy Catholic Campus Center. Find out more at diddycenter.org. Welcome back. This is Father Matt, and today we are going over the fourth installment of our series called Exodus to the Empty Tomb, how the second book of the Bible helps us understand the most important event in the history of the world, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last time we talked about a very important topic, Passover and typology, an incredibly important topic. And initially I had planned on using at least part of this fourth episode to talk about Passover. But I wanted to take a step back from Passover for for an episode to address some questions I probably should have addressed in the very beginning. You know, I initially wrote Exodus to the Empty Tomb as a four-part talk, uh, a series of four talks to be given during Lent. And because, you know, it was only four nights that uh, we had to go over this material, there was a lot that, uh, there was a lot that I cut out. Um, and, and one of them was really kind of going over the why, why we are talking about all this. Now, maybe that wasn't that smart of a decision, um, but why are we doing this? Why are we reading the Bible in this typological way with a literal and spiritual sense? Well, we find the answer, or rather answers, um, there's a couple, in our gospel this past Sunday, which was the road to Emmaus, a passage where Jesus essentially gives us the blueprint for how we are to study the scriptures. And, and what is that blueprint? He basically teaches us biblical typology. Uh, in fact, that partly answers the questions why we are reading the Bible this way, because Christ himself gives us the typological reading of sacred scripture. But there is more than that. Uh, that, that I hope we shall see. So, so today we're going to look at the passage, The Road to Emmaus, and, and what it teaches us about biblical typology. And as we get into that, we're also going to talk about uh, the supernatural virtue of faith, the theological virtue of faith, and, and the motives of credibility. And we'll explain what those are um, in, in the next segment, okay? But first, uh, let's let's take a look at the road to Emmaus. The road to Emmaus takes place on the first Easter Sunday evening, and it's here that Jesus reveals himself as the key to understanding the Old Testament. Um, so we actually we had this this past Sunday for uh, what would what was the third Sunday of Easter as our gospel passage. So I'll just I'll just kind of run through it. We'll read a, a small bit of it, but most mostly I'll just uh, paraphrase it. So these two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus on the first Easter Sunday evening, and the risen Christ draws near to them, yet their eyes are prevented from recognizing him. And Christ essentially says, what are you talking about? And they tell him, uh, <laughs> you know, are you the only person who hasn't heard what's happened in Jerusalem in these days? And he says, what sort of thing? So they say, the things that happened to Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers both handed him over to a sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it is now the third day since this took place. Some women from our group, however, have astounded us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came back and reported that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who announced that he was alive. Then some of those with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women had described, but him they did not see. All right, end quote. 
what's going on here? Well, uh, you know, they're they're telling the risen Lord. Uh, interestingly, I mean, the one person who knows exactly what's happened, they're telling kind of their understanding of what's happened in Jerusalem in these days and how their hopes of Jesus being uh, the long-form Messiah King was crushed. This is really important. Really what's going on here is the faith of these two disciples has suffered greatly. You know, the events of Good Friday scandalized them uh, because Jesus died this horrible death. How could he redeem Israel if he had died this terrible and shameful death? And they really, they've lost their faith in Jesus, at least insofar as Jesus is the Messiah. They lost the faith, their faith in Jesus as Messiah, I should say. Um, because how do they identify him, right? They, they identify him as a prophet, uh, mighty in deed and word, right? So the word Messiah in Greek is Christos. It means anointed one. Uh, so when we say Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name. Uh, Christ is, is um, you know, it's his title as the anointed one, the Messiah. Uh, Jesus truly is a, a prophet. He's priest, prophet, and king. Uh, he's the prophet promised in Deuteronomy. But that isn't all he is. He isn't merely a prophet. And the fact that that's how they identify him um, that's not just a, a insignificant detail. It means that their faith in Jesus has suffered greatly. Secondly, when other disciples claim the Lord is risen, these two, at the very least, are skeptical, right? At the very least, they're skeptical. Maybe, giving them the benefit of the doubt, maybe we could say they don't want to get their hopes up all over again. So their faith has suffered. Then the risen Christ, whose identity is still veiled, rebukes them. And continue with our reading from the Gospel of Luke, quote, And he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them what referred to him in all the scriptures. All right, why does Christ rebuke them? All right, it's not because they don't know the scriptures, that they don't, they don't know what the what the prophets and the law is. No, they do. Um, Christ rebukes them because they don't believe. They don't believe the scriptures, the prophets. They are lacking faith. But Jesus doesn't simply rebuke them, scold them, and leave. No, he, he meets them where they are in their brokenness and, and, and begins to teach them, begins to rebuild their faith. And he basically starts a Bible study. Um, we read, Quote, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. In other words, Christ explains to them that the events of Good Friday were foretold in sacred scripture, that the Messiah, the Christ, had to suffer these things and die to redeem all mankind. You know, for example, the prophecies of Isaiah come to mind, such as the suffering servant. But Luke goes out of his way to point out that Christ began with Moses. Now, what does it mean to say he begins with Moses? Does that mean Jesus uh, started with Exodus and skipped over Genesis? No. Uh, traditionally, we believe that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The fact that Christ begins with Moses, Dr. Feingold points out, quote, makes it extremely likely that Jesus explained not only prophetic words, 
but also how the central events of the Old Testament prefigured his Paschal mystery. Why is that? Well, the book of Moses, the books of Moses, they contain very little in terms of direct prophecy about Christ's passion. Yet there's a great deal of typology. There's a great deal of symbolic images which foreshadow, point forward to the passion of the Lord. You know, we could talk about the sacrifice of Isaac or the bronze serpent in Numbers, uh, the Paschal Lamb, which we talked about at length uh, last time. So Christ himself gives us biblical typology. All right, but why does he give us biblical typology? Well, think of it this way. Christ is saying to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, not only was my crucifixion not a defeat, not only did I paradoxically redeem the world by dying on Calvary, but I said this was how I was going to do it. And I told you centuries before in the scriptures, in the prophets, this is something only possible to God. In other words, biblical typology is a sign that God is at work. It's a motive of credibility. And I do want to take some time here to talk about motives of credibility and faith because this whole Exodus to the Empty Tomb series, you know, if you wonder why are we doing this, why are you spending so much time on this, it, it makes no sense if we don't understand this interplay between the motives of credibility and faith. Okay, so first let's talk about faith. Faith in general, or maybe I should rather say faith on a human level, is essentially accepting something is true based on the testimony of a witness. We reason that this particular individual is trustworthy and credible, and so we accept as true their testimony. We do this all the time. In fact, we can't function without faith on a human level. Dr. Kenneth Howell, when he came in November and did two Rise Night talks, uh, he, he touched on this in his talk on the myth that the church is anti-science. You know, he said something like, uh, the earth is spinning. You know, I, think, I think at the ETH at the equator, the earth spins at the, race of a, uh, at the rate of a thousand miles per hour. And his point was, look, you know, we all believe that. How many of us can actually empirically prove and verify that the earth is constantly spinning? I mean, if you were to ask me how to do that, at the very least, I'd have to Google it. And probably I, it would get me no closer. I mean, I... I I'm not a physics whiz. I never really studied this thing. It would be very hard for me to prove this. And that's true for most of us, right? Um, does that mean we shouldn't believe the earth is spinning? No, we accept the authority of those who have studied it, physicists and scientists. We can't know everything, right, empirically. Or let's take a simpler example. When I go to the pharmacy to have a prescription filled, I trust the pharmacist who is a total stranger, to do his or her job and put the correct pills in the prescription bottle. I have never once come home from the pharmacy, taken out one of the pills and begun a chemical lab test to verify that the pharmacist gave me the correct medicine. In fact, I would not have a clue on where to begin to do something like that. No, I judge the pharmacist is trustworthy, or at the very least, that they wouldn't want to throw away their careers by pulling a stunt like that. Okay, so that is faith on a human level. What is faith on a supernatural level? Well, faith on the supernatural level is a theological virtue, a supernatural virtue by which we, with the aid and inspiration of the grace of God, believe that the things revealed by him are true. Moreover, we believe what God has revealed to be true not because 
we can figure it out by the light of natural reason, but because of the authority of God himself who reveals them. God who cannot be deceived or be deceived. God cannot deceive nor be deceived. In other words, if human faith is accepting something as true based on the testimony of a witness we deem credible, then faith on the theological level, supernatural level, is the most certain kind of knowledge because it is based on the testimony of God himself, who precisely because he is God, cannot deceive nor be deceived. All right. A lot of this is hashed out in Vatican I, uh, the first Vatican Council. Uh, Dei Verbum V, uh, Dei Verbum is a document from the second Vatican Council. It talks about the act of faith, what that consists in. Uh, and so I'm going to read a, a, a short quote from Dei Verbum V, and then uh, we'll, we'll break it down. Quote, the obedience of faith is to be given to God who reveals an obedience by which man commits his whole self freely to God, offering the full submission of intellect and will, who reveals and freely assenting to the truth revealed by him. To make this act of faith the grace of God and the interior help of the Holy Spirit must proceed and assist, moving the heart and turning it to God, opening the eyes of the mind and giving joy and ease to everyone in assenting to the truth and believing it. To bring about an even deeper understanding of revelation, the same Holy Spirit constantly brings faith to completion by his gifts, end quote. All right, let's break that down. God reveals himself to us out of love for us. Faith consists in returning that love by committing our whole self freely to God. We do that with this intellectual ascent to the mind. Uh, we, we believe what God has revealed to be true. Um, and, and we freely choose with the help of God's grace to commit our lives to him. Okay, uh, so faith is um, only possible with the with the aid and grace of God. Faith is, in a sense, a, a gift, uh, but it's a gift that we must uh, cooperate with and give our intellectual assent to, our free commitment to. But the great difficulty in making this act of divine faith is knowing when and where God has spoken. Right? I mean. The truth is, God doesn't speak directly to each and every one of us in the manner he spoke to Moses, right? He spoke, uh, Exodus and, and other Pentateuch books speak about God, uh, spoke to Moses as one man to another, right? God doesn't speak that way to all of us. Ordinarily, he speaks to us as he spoke, um, you know, excuse me, ordinarily, how it works is how it works with Moses. God speaks to Moses, Moses speaks to us, right? God works through intermediaries, right? To make his revelation known. Yet, that doesn't mean we sh anytime somebody says they have a message from God, we have to accept and believe that. Be that would be ridiculous because a lot of people have claimed that. And they've claimed to have contradictory messages from God. Um, so it makes sense if God is going to use an intermediary, intermediary, He's going to give his credentials. You know, interestingly, um, as a priest, when I go to Rome, there is a card called a celebrate, which is Latin for let him celebrate. And um, basically it says I'm a priest in good standing. Uh, and, and, you know, Archbishop Nauman has signed it. Um, you know, I, I can't just show up at St. Peter's Basilica Sacristy and say, I'm a priest, let me celebrate Mass. Um, you know, they're going to ask for some proof. Um, at least they should. Uh, <laughs> sometimes they do. Uh, sometimes they don't. It's Italy. Um, but I love Italy. Don't, don't take that to be some kind of slam. 
but yeah, you know, I need to show some kind of credentials, right? I need to show some kind of credentials. Uh, this was true. I went to Ireland this past summer with some priest friends, and we were at the shrine of Our Lady of Knock, uh, and we go to the sacristy of the shrine, and we say, hey, we're, we're priests from America. We, can we celebrate Mass? And the sacristan said, I need to see your celebrate cards. And I was the only one who had one. I was the only one who brought one of the, of the, um, uh, the, the other two guys who were with me. So the other two guys had to say Mass in the hotel room, and I was able to say Mass at the shrine. Um, so because why? They expected some credentials, okay? Well, likewise, if God's going to speak through intermediary, intermediaries, um, he should give these divine credentials, so to speak. And these divine credentials are, are what we call the motives of credibility or the preamble of faith. Here's what, here's what Dr. Feingold has to say on motives of credibility. Quote, the motives of credibility are supernatural signs that manifest the miraculous action of God above natural causes. Their purpose is to show that an alleged revelation from God is truly his word and not that of a false prophet. These motives allow us to make the transition from human faith in the word of a prophet to divine faith in God who speaks through the prophet. Proportionate motives of credibility make the act of faith reasonable and morally compelling. With sufficient motives of credibility, it is unreasonable not to believe. Without such motives, it is unreasonable to believe. Okay? All right, so what's, what's Dr. Feingold saying? Uh, he's saying that these, these motives of credibility are supernatural signs and, and that manifest the miraculous action of God. Uh, you know, th these are, for instance, like the miracles of Christ and the saints, most notably the resurrection. Uh, we can also talk about the prophecies that have been fulfilled. And I think you can talk about the church's growth and uh, holiness, fruitfulness, stability. These are all signs of God's revelation, okay? And they enable us to see that it's God speaking and that we believe because God is speaking who cannot deceive nor be deceived. Now he says without sufficient motive, or excuse me, he says with sufficient motives of credibility, it is unreasonable not to believe. Without such motives, uh, it is unreasonable to believe. So if we have these motives of credibility, the reasonable thing to do is, is to believe. Okay. Now, uh, Dr. Feingold also is quick to point out that God's grace, a God's grace, aids the intellect in recognizing the motives of credibility. Okay. So, so this isn't just um, a human endeavor. That God's grace is needed to make the act of faith. All right. Now that we've talked at length about faith and the motives of credibility, actually, we haven't really talked at length about those, but it was a fairly long detour. Let's circle back to Jesus and the disciples on the road to Emmaus, okay? Why does Jesus go through the uh, biblical typology with the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Because it revives their faith, right? They had fallen into despair. They had hoped Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel. Remember, they called Jesus a prophet, mighty in deed and word. They no longer believed he was the Messiah, the Christ. All right? They thought there was no way the Messiah would suffer such a terrible death, such an obvious defeat. Yet Jesus opened the scriptures for them, and their hearts burned within them. In other words, because of biblical typology, they were able to see the plan of God was at work in Good Friday. Because God had essentially told us, hey, this is how I'm going to redeem mankind. He told us through words, direct prophecies, as well as deeds which prefigured or foreshadowed the reality of the Paschal mystery. Christ opened the scriptures. 
He went through the Old Testament typologically, and this revived the faith of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it can revive our faith as well. Uh, it can strengthen our faith, and it can revive the faith of those who have lost it. You know, this is why it's so uh, important for us to study this, because there will be times in our lives when our faith will be challenged. And we can go back to these prophecies that have been fulfilled, uh, these types uh, that have been fulfilled, these, these foreshadowings and prefigurings that have come to fulfillment in Christ. And we can see, yes, this is God who's spoken to us, God who cannot deceive nor be deceived. So we uh, have this sure and certain faith uh, because uh, Christ has given us biblical typology. In conclusion, why are we doing this? Why are we reading the Bible typologically? Well, first and foremost, because Jesus himself gives us biblical typology. He revealed that he is the key to understanding the Old Testament. Secondly, as we saw in the example of the disciples on the road to Emmaus studying the Bible typologically, um, it strengthens our faith as it strengthened their faith. Um, and so helps us with the aid of God and his grace to make the act of divine faith, to assent, to believe in all that God has revealed because uh, he has revealed it, uh, because he cannot deceive nor be deceived. Thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, we will return next episode with Passover. Uh, so we'll wrap up Passover and we'll continue on with Exodus. Uh, please email me any questions. Be safe and God bless.